Hi, this is Debbie Millman. In a few weeks, I'll be back with a new season of Design Matters. But for now, I want to look back on some of the podcasts we recorded in 2017. If you hear something you like and want to listen to the whole podcast, you can find it on iTunes, along with over 300 other interviews I've conducted over the 13 years I've been hosting Design Matters. This past fall, I spoke with Thomas Kale, the director of Hamilton. The musical became an instant phenomenon and one of the hottest tickets ever on Broadway. Tommy got his start in New York when he was hired by Alan Hubby, the owner of the Drama Bookshop, which had a 50-seat performance space in the basement. I asked him about some of his early productions and about how he met Lin-Manuel Miranda, who wrote the music and lyrics for Hamilton. I did four plays that I wrote at the American Theater of Actors on 54th Street, which is sort of like a rite of passage. It's like above a police station. And I think my budget was $1,300. And... I mean, that was the dream. I mean, right? and I was on 54th Street. Um, and, and the drama bookshop is on 40th Street between 7th and 8th. It's still there. It's an absolute cultural institution that for some reason said, hey, go downstairs, paint that room black, and just make stuff. And that's sort of how we paid our rent. And Alan's generosity made us feel, this was my friend John Mailer, Neil Stewart, and Anthony Veneziale, it was the four of us. We thought, wow, we have 52 weeks to program. We can't fill all of that. So all of those producing genes of yours have to be cultivated because, okay, Debbie, you wrote something great. Go get two of your friends. I'll set up the chairs for this one. Okay, then, John, you write the next one. Neil, you direct it. I'll be in this. So we just had to keep that thing moving and we had to keep it full. And so I I learned not only how much bigger the world was than my little group of friends, but that there were people that were going to make things that I would never be able to make. And I welcomed that. And that was, you know, there's a line in Hamilton, you know, which is taken from a quote attributed to Burr, if I'd read more Stern and less Voltaire, I would have known the world was wide enough for both Hamilton and me. And when Lynn and I both read the book, before we'd really started talking about it, we both circled that. And I think a lot of that was cultivated down in that basement. Like, I needed those other people to make those things. Otherwise, they would not exist. So this binary idea that it's you or it's me was completely exploded back then. It never occurred to me that someone else's success meant I couldn't achieve or there wasn't space for me. I think there's there's a way to create space. And I learned a lot of that in this tiny basement um, in some sort of paradox. Um, You and Lynn met in the spring of 2002, though you had been given the script and score of the musical In the Heights two years before. Now, I read that you were immediately taken by the play, yet you waited for two years to meet. We had to graduate. No, why? Why? You, why, why? you were waiting for him to graduate. I was graduate. waiting for him to graduate, yeah. So so you kind of were watching him? Were you just waiting for well, him to... Well, you know, in 2000, like, I mean, first of all, talk about when you're not aware of time. You know, That's it's 22 true. years old. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, yes, yeah, so we'll wait two years till he graduates. There's no, there's no consciousness that Lynn is living his life for those two years <laughs> or might not want to <laughs> meet up with it's us. It's not a football coach waiting to get him into no, the no, professional league. No, it was, this, was not, this was not the major leagues. Um, <laughs> and when I went to go visit Lynn with my friends in May of that year, it never occurred to me that he wouldn't say yes. I just thought, well, we'll go and we're going to say we have a little theater on 40th Street with 50 chairs. Why would you not want to go there? And he kind of looked and he was like, all right. And I'll talk to you. But, you know, Lynn was even then focused and uh, deep thinking and had a real idea of what he wanted to do, which was make theater and tell stories. And we sat in the basement in June 
and just had a uh, a conversation that has lasted for, you know. Well, that was a five-hour conversation that yeah. became the rest of your life. But you're you're not telling us about one really interesting little story that happened before when you first 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 met. Oh, now yes. you went to see his senior senior thesis, which you didn't like nearly as much as in the Heights. And when you met him, you shook his hand and said, "Enjoy this." You know what? I was a young man. <laughs> <laughs> but you you tease each other now, right? You say oh, that all the time. All the time. Yeah, enjoy this. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, enjoy this, bro. Uh, yeah. I really, I really. <laughs> <laughs> co-opted that phrase and ruined it for us. Um, yeah, I, I, I was at this you know time in my life where I thought I couldn't lie. Like my artistic integrity was so important to maintain for myself that I couldn't go and tell him that it was wonderful if it wasn't. I just said enjoy this because frankly, what more was there to say about on borrowed time? His senior thesis. Mm, yes. Not to be revived soon. No. <laughs> Not by me. <laughs> Now, you said that In the Heights had the ability to capture the music of today, today, that if you go back in history, popular music and theater music were the same thing. And this was, was this the first time that you heard hip hop used to develop a story in this type of theatrical environment? It was probably the first time I'd heard it. That doesn't mean it didn't exist. It's just that, you know, in my myopia, I only had so many things that I was absorbing because I first heard this in 2000. So, you know, yeah, I mean, here, the first hip-hop radio station didn't come out until the 1993. Yeah, so. um, and Stretch Armstrong, um, Wesley and Gred. Um, <laughs> I remember being on the subway in in one of those very um, unair-conditioned New York subway stations. Like there's certain ones like Herald Square when you're like, oh my gosh, come on, somebody. And Lynn had written a song about how hot it was in a subway station. And I was in – it was just like he's, write, like he's writing about my life and it sounds like the kind of music – that if someone said, hey, here's the new Tribe album or the Fugees made this or here's De La or, you know, like then I'd be like, oh, they have a song about this. And this was a guy writing in the context of story, a larger story, a, a musical, a song that felt like it was it was speaking to me in that way that I think we're always looking for something that feels like it's for us. And here it was, you know, quite literally. And I just thought, I don't know who this kid is, but my friends, John and Neil, who had seen the show, I said, you were right when does he graduate? Let's go find him in May and I will spill my soda and say, enjoy this and try to not ruin it immediately. <laughs> when you finally met at the Drama Bookshops Theater, you sat and talked for this five-hour sort of mega conversation. And, and I read that you stated that you'd felt like you'd been looking for him your whole life and didn't know. What was that like? Did, were you scared by that in any way? Did it feel so like overwhelmingly powerful that you didn't want to blow it? Or I knew that I, I couldn't blow it because okay. we were – we were just we were saying the same things. We were saying the same lyrics at the same time. It was just where have you been? That, right. That's what it felt like more than anything. And I just didn't want to stop talking to him. And so, uh, you know, I feel the same way 15 years later as I did then. Uh, and that five hours felt like 10 seconds. I mean, it was it was not real time and space. It was just like this ratatouille moment. It was like, whoo, and there I was. That was Thomas Kale. Elizabeth Alexander has published six books of poems, two collections of essays, and a play. Her book, American Sublime, was one of three finalists for the Pulitzer Prize. In 2009, she wrote and read Praise Song for the Day for President Barack Obama's inauguration. Then her world came crashing down. A few days after her husband turned 50, he died suddenly leaving her with two young sons, 
Alexander turned her loss and love into a heartbreaking memoir, The Light of the World. When I spoke to her in April, I asked her what it was like to write about the death of her partner. I was just scribbling things down um, in a way that really felt, I, I had never understood this before about my writing, but it was how I knew what I was living through. It was how I knew, I knew I was alive, but it was how I knew I was somehow sentient, fully myself. I did not know what fugue state I was in. And so I just wrote without looking at it. I was writing and writing and writing. And my very, very beloved book agent, Faith Childs, I mean, person who's been in my life for 30 years, who I, I love, she's family to me. She said, you know, an editor has come to me to ask. She knew what happened and she asked if you might be writing. She said, I think you're writing. And I said, I am. I said, but I, you know, I'm not writing a thing. I'm not writing a book. Um, it felt almost shameful to think about this as anything that would be a product in any way. But, you know, the next magical thing that happened was going to meet this extraordinary editor, Gretchen Young, who has also become family to me, and talking to her and seeing what she saw and imagined. And so and then I signed a contract and I said, OK, but I'm probably – I'm planning to give the money back to you because I'll try but I don't think I can do this. And then there was the question of my children and, OK, well, so now I've written this thing but what does it mean to my children to share this? So, we, you know, we went very rigorously through that process. But uh, at the end of the day, at the end of a very intensive, not even a one-year period – there was a, a book that is as much as my children, it is Fikre's gift to me because he believed in me as an artist more than anybody ever. So the thing that I never imagined, I mean, it's unfortunate that there was the occasion to write it, but it pulled out of me something that I never would have dreamed I could have done. When the book was published, it was excerpted in The New Yorker and you stated, loss is our common denominator. None of us will escape it. None of us will outrun death. And you go on to ask these questions. What do we do in the space between that is our lives? What is the quality and richness of our lives? How do we move through struggle and let community hold us when we have been laid low? This book had to live somewhere outside of the sound of my own voice. I had to be larger than me and my individual love. Elizabeth, were you ever worried that you couldn't do that? I kept doing it without reflection. So suddenly, you know, he died very suddenly and he was, uh, you know, a great painter. So there was like all of his work to deal with and his studio to deal with. And, oh, by the way, now I'm raising these two sons and, oh, there's family and there's community and, oh, wow, something happened to me too and I have to eat and, you know, get up and wash my face. You know, so all of the – there was literally no time for reflection which was kind of a, a gift in a way, you know, because I think who knows what rabbit hole of whatever I might have gone if I if I kept looking back and looking back and looking back. So the editorial process, which usually I do a little bit more as I go along, came very late in the game because I would just craft these little prose bits, you know, not prose poems, but not long prose. The chapters are very short. And, and I would just make one and make another one and make another one. And I just kept going. You talk about how Fikre was helpful to you in the writing of the 
inauguration poem. And in the years that the two of you were together, you wrote four books of poems, two books of essays, two edited collections, countless essays and talks. You taught hundreds of young people African-American literature, poetry, directed a poetry center, and chaired an African-American studies department. Fikre made over 800 paintings countless photographs and collages. He ran two restaurants. He also had two sons. Suddenly you're now writing and taking care of your children on your own. How did you even approach the notion of having to do this alone? Well, um, you know, you, you read something earlier about letting community hold me. And I also, in listening to praise song for the day, uh, I thought, I guess I've always believed this, you know, this love beyond marital, filial, national, love that casts a widening pool of light. So while I am a great believer in and practitioner of intimacy, um, uh, intimacy between two people, intimacy between lovers, between spouses, intimacy between, you know, you with your children, I also really do believe and I came to understand this very, very fulsomely that we cannot only belong to our romantic units. You know, I mean, and I've always been this way, like Valentine's Day. I give like I I mean, I haven't for a long time, but I always give out lots and lots of Valentine's. Mm -hmm. It's a day for for love. And but I believe this as actually ideology, you know, that that if people who are in heterosexual nuclear families think that like it's all shiny and all about them and their shimmering perfection in their homes and that their love can stay there, they are mistaken. You have to belong to more. You have to belong to more and then hopefully – this is not why you do it but then the village will have your back when you need the village, which we all will at some point. Elizabeth Alexander. Mike Mills is a polymath who works in a lot of different media. He's designed album covers for the Beastie Boys, produced commercials for Nike and made everything from skateboards to scarves. His artwork is collected by museums, and his feature films include the Oscar-nominated 20th Century Women. Mills grew up in a creative home. His father was an art historian and museum director, and secretly gay. His mother was a draftsperson with ambitions of being a pilot in World War II. She was hard-drinking, hard-smoking, and kind of butch. When I spoke to Mike Mills in November, he said one of his biggest influences was the epic dinner parties his parents used to throw. And the dinner parties were like 20 to 100 people. And so the house is like this constant community center or Salon, party center. Right? Salons makes it sound a little more romantic. Oh, okay. uh, Santa Barbara in the 70s, sort of a drunken, weird intersection of a whole bunch of different kinds of people. And the art world back then was more heterogeneous than I feel like it is now. So, yeah, it was exposed to a whole lot of people. And that sense that um, this engagement, this kind of social engagement, and like they were sort of hosts to parties both in their house and metaphorically just in life. As a director, that's sort of how I treat directing. I've invited you all to this get-together. I am the host. It all sort of revolves around me in a way, or your good time, or your performance, or your job. And I take a lot of cues from their generousness that I saw and how contagious that is. And so it's, I don't know, that's been, in a weird way, the biggest work influence on my life are my parents' dinner parties. 
I don't know if that's really true, but it feels like it is. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I know your first job was at McDonald's. Mm. And that's where you learned that the customer is always right. Customer is always right. Has that influenced your directing as well? Yeah, I always say that. I joke about that. You know, you have, when you do a movie, you have lots of screenings and you show your movie to all sorts of people. And, and during the edit process, you have like a screening every week just to figure out your movie. And often you, know, you get all this feedback. And if you really invite negative feedback as a director, you always feel overwhelmed. They always want to argue with the person. Well, no, no, that's not what it means. But I never do that because McDonald's taught me that the customer is always right. There's no use <laughs> arguing with If that's their interpretation of your movie, they're right. You're not right. As the author of this text, you don't have control over it. and you're So somewhere that's like Roland Barth meets McDonald's is kind of part of my interpretation of notes uh, paradigm. Yeah, I find it's really hard to convince somebody that they're wrong when they really, really think they're right. Yeah, but in filmmaking and in film, the film experience, the film exchange, they are right. The audience is always right. It doesn't matter what you intended. If they interpret something else, that's what happened. It's like arguing with facts. Right. Yeah. You were in punk bands all through high school. Were you first intending to be a musician? Well, I was first intending to be a professional skateboarder, and skating got me into all this stuff. Skating is how I started doing graphics, really. I started doing just like imitating all the logos of all the companies and then doing logos on boards. And weirdly, it was part of the skating aesthetic experience. And skateboarding was like an aesthetic experience. You're exposed to like kids' style and mm, just all the art that surrounded that, that world and punk music. So skating slides into punk. Yes, didn't work out being a professional skateboarder or like having a company or any of that How stuff. come? How come? It just wasn't that good. I was like a sponsored amateur skater. I was sort of like a proletariat, you know, like B-level Southern California competitive skateboarder. But I loved it and taught me so much about freedom and trying to figure yourself out and the actual experience of skateboarding can be quite euphoric, you know, like you're in vertical pools. It's very engrossing and all that. And, you know, music actually changes your bloodstream, like changes, oh, I think your, it changes your, your DNA. Chemistry, Absolutely. Right? And I think I was always searching for that in these other mediums, and film can kind of do that a bit. I read that when you first heard punk music, you stated, what is this noise? What is this destructive noise? Mm-hmm. <laughs> when was that? I don't remember the exact year. I mean, it must have been around 79, 80. And I was at the Del Mar Skate Ranch, I could tell you that. And there was a contest, and they played music really loud at all the contests. And it went from being like, I don't know, something probably like some rock music to like, it was either the Buzzcocks or... Well, I know that you were listening at that point to Circle Jerks, Black Flag, King of Four, Buzzcocks. The very first thing, it was a British band. I remember that part. I don't remember who exactly it was, but I remember it just sounding completely atonal and not like music and like, why would anybody purposely make this? Why would anybody purposely listen to this? But literally, the next morning I was hooked. You know, it's one of those things that happens to you. And then, yeah, so the scene that was around that L.A., Skating scene was the L.A. hardcore scene, so like Black Flag, Circle Jerks, Adolescence, TSOL, those are all the bands that everyone listened to, and they frequented the skate parks and vice versa. 
you were in a band while you were in high school called R.I.P., which I read that someone funnier than you yep. renamed the band Rock Stars in Puberty. Yeah, yeah. We were all too sincere. <laughs> but I, but I, I, you read, you appeared on local radio stations. You played a fair amount of shows. I mean, you must have been pretty good. No? As the band? Yeah. Oh, we were, um, the band after that, the incarnation after that was pretty decent. And that, we were on the local radio station a couple times and, and there was the older members of that band who were quite good and like interesting and taught me a lot about music and turned me on to like Joy Division and Bauhaus and kind of more sophisticated arty things and just like LA hardcore stuff. Once you got into Joy Division, you then also were interested in the Talking Heads. And I read that at a punk house in Santa Barbara, somebody spray painted "Mike Mills is an art fag" mm-hmm. um, on on a house, which is a scene that later appeared um, in in slightly different configuration mm-hmm. in Twentieth Century Women. Mm-hmm. Were you really an art fag? Yeah, I mean, all that happened. My sister, so this gets involved in the movie a bit. So I have these sisters who are ten and seven years older, and Meg's in. New York City, going to Parsons and really in it, like going to CB's, going to Studio 54, knowing that scene. And my other sister, Katie's at Berkeley, and had just seen the Talking Heads play those shows at um, the Plaza there. And those are kind of famous shows now. And they both simultaneously, I can't remember who told me first, like, you should listen to Talking Heads. And then Meg somehow got me that orange shirt um, from New York, and I very proudly wore it. And I was in junior high, I remember, and the coolest, most sophisticated girl in school came up to me and said i love your shirt and i remember just thinking like this is power like this is (laughs) this is big and uh but yeah so so i mean anybody who was involved in that music scene will know what i'm about to talk about which is there was all these rules and there's all these divisions and if you listen to the talking heads or the b-52s or bauhaus or joy division you're kind of slightly illegal and you were you could be called an art fag and that was something that was bandied about and it's part of like this larger Oh, heteronormative, kind of macho, misogynist part of that hardcore scene, which was anything to call another guy a fag or to accuse him of being that is like the it's the words you hear right before the fight. Right. It's the it's the big accusation. Yep. It's the it's sissy. It, yeah, sorry, it's a derivation of sissy. So, um, and there was this punk house right by the school where all these kids called the Cedar Rats hung out and stuff like that. And they were they were interesting. And I was totally pretentious. So there's a there's a side to their dislike of me, which I am sympathetic about. <laughs> why, were you, why were you pretentious? I still am. I dislike the most pretentious art. I'm sorry, but it's true. What do you consider to be pretentious art? Well, like as a filmmaker, I like I love Alain Rosnais, right? And I love Fellini and I love... Oh, you know, just stuff like that. And my, you know, my. I just think that's good art. <laughs> yeah, me too. But, you know, I went to Cooper, right? The Friday night film class, film, first film I saw when I was 18 years old was eight and a half, right? So I've been exposed to all that. My, you know, I grew up in an art house, but I am sort of attracted to things that have a slight sort of fainting couch quality to them, right? A slight, like, oh, me and my malaise quality to them. And that does get a little pretentious. That was Mike Mills. I am in awe of Sarah Jones. If you've seen any of her one-woman shows, you'll know why. She can transform herself from an elderly Jewish woman into a young rapper, into a valley girl, all within the snap of a finger. The characters in her plays are drawn from the real people in her life, relatives, neighborhood grandmas, strangers on the bus. One such person was her sister, who died of a heroin overdose, 
When I spoke with Sarah Jones in April, I asked her how her sister's death affected her. I lost my sister in a way that was so unfathomable, and yet it was such a present part of my life. It was like, um, you know, this new being entered and took took up all of the space in my world, the being of her no longer being, right? And it was the era of heroin chic. So a lot of kids were just trying it. And and I remember thinking this is without question the most horrific thing that I could ever imagine. And now I'm not afraid of anything. I'm not afraid of all of the things that I thought mattered, um, what other people think of me or what what I might do with my career. It just sort of upended everything in a way that I couldn't know then was going to be ultimately very freeing. And I feel like my sister sort of set my characters free. I had been afraid uh, – this was the era of, you know, kind of, like I said, hip-hop and sort of spoken word. There was a lot of, you know, you had to talk in a cadence that showed that you cared about the motherland. You know, there was like this whole thing going on and I was afraid to be too multiculti and not black enough. And I was always just, you know, kind of worried that I wasn't fitting – all of a sudden, it just didn't matter. And I was able to access an authenticity that defied these conventional notions of what was cool or what was popular. And my characters just started leaking out of their own volition. And I really credit my sister with that. Mm. I mean, she really did sort of unearth something in me that I didn't know was there. Yeah. That next year, in 1998, you debuted your first character sketch work at the Neorican Poets Cafe yeah. in your show Surface Transit, which ultimately won a Helen Hayes Award and was nominated for a Drama Desk Award. And the show drew upon the diverse group of people, both in your family and in the neighborhood you grew up in in Queens. And is it true that it was based on characters you encountered on your Q46 bus commute to school? It's true. Who knew? A hub of you know, <laughs> creativity. Yes, a hot strap of, hangers. Yes. And, yeah, that's yes. amazing. Yeah. So how did you how did you capture their spirit? How did you decide who you wanted to become? Yes, I think people self-selected. And the way they did that was they were larger than life. And yet I couldn't deny that they were right in front of me. This wasn't central casting. This was someone who who actually talks like this when he gets on the train. This is the actual voices coming out of his mouth. He really is, you know, kind of, yeah, she got the house and the, and the boat. Can you believe that? I mean, get the fuck out of here. You know, that guy, that real person was so compelling to me. I would you know, sort of subtly eavesdrop for as long as I could, sometimes missing my own real subway stop. In Surface Transit, you first create some of your most popular characters. You created Ms. Lady, who's an older black woman who states she is not homeless, but houseless. Profound realization, just astounding. You meet Lorraine Levine, who uh, is the aforementioned grandmother Rashid, the young black male aspiring rapper who is addicted to rhyming and in a recovery program for it. <laughs> and Keisha Ray, a young independent black woman who is frustrated by the misogyny in music. And I understand that you conduct extensive research in order to create your characters. Can you describe some of what you do and how you go about inhabiting them? Because the cadence of your voice changes, the... Energy in your body morphs, 
everything transforms mm. except your physical presence. Mm. And even your physical presence is transitions with different body language. Mm. But who you are remains who you are. How do you do this? Well, it's interesting you say this because I recently had a massage therapist I've worked with for a long time. I sometimes will go into character on the table if I'm in a creative mode. It's very helpful. He has told me that I actually change. My body changes. It freaked me out when he told me. And then I thought, well, I'm just going to accept that this is something about the way I work. But it really is a matter of seeing you and feeling such a gratitude for your you-ness that I'm willing to kind of go to any length to represent that as accurately as I can. So it does mean, uh, for example, uh, with Miss Lady, you know, I had to be willing to get very not glamorous. The first time I did Miss Lady, uh, I thought I'm never going to get a date again, you know, after people see my face looking like this. But I would rather um, honor her and look like however I got to look like so that I could really um, let her have her time in, in on the center stage. That's what I want, somebody who would never get a chance to be on stage at all. Uh, you know, I took Miss Lady to Davos, to yes. the World Economic Forum. And I remember thinking, what am I? This is great. And I'm so glad I did. Yeah. So you literally transcend your physical self. You have very few props, no makeup changes. Is it a conscious thing where you're thinking, okay, now I'm going to change my voice. It's going to go into this cadence. Now I'm going to use my eyes in this way because I'm sitting in front of you watching you do this and you physically become different. I want to say I'm not trained, right? I, I left Bryn Mawr before I could soak up any of the wonderful theater department they had there. And what I found is that the people themselves, if I really allow them into my mind's eye and then the kind of kryptonite for me is a mirror, as long as I'm not in front of a mirror and I can't see this physical body I'm in. And when I'm wearing Levine, as long, you know, I don't, sometimes I don't have my glasses, which is so frustrating. But when I have them, hi, Debbie, sweetheart, by the way. Hi, hi Lorraine. Hi. You know, it's so important uh, to have. Um, I think for Sarah, you know, she wants to get out of the way. I think that's what it is. She tries to get out of the way so we can be here, you know, because she's, a, I don't know if you've seen her, but she's very big. She gets in the way. <laughs> she's tall. She's tall. Sarah, let's talk about Lorraine's right hand. Oh, yeah. The palsy. So Lorraine and I have been having this debate because she doesn't love that she has a tremor in her hand, and yet she gesticulates. She has all her life, and I have relatives. She's loosely based on real relatives of mine. and uh, Who did a shout-out at Katie Lazarus's podcast oh God, with you. True. <laughs> you can't take them anywhere. <laughs> Hi, Aunt Lisa. So, <laughs> there. yes. So the feeling of... Knowing Lorraine wishes her hands weren't doing this, and yet, you know, she's all hands. There's something so poignant about that to me. It's like, you know, watching a dancer who, I mean, all they are is this movement in this body, and perhaps they now have to use a cane or they have to – there's a certain way that her shaking hand – for me, I, I've actually been injured I can't remember where I was, but there was something going on. I had like a shoulder thing or something. But when it was time to be Lorraine, I was able to do it. I was, she was able to do what she needed to do, even though I was 
It was, it's a very strange experience. That was Sarah Jones. If you're like me, internet technology infiltrates every aspect of your life. Maybe it's ordering groceries on Instacart or buying garbage bags on Amazon. We've become utterly reliant on the internet. My next guest, Anil Dash, has created blogging platforms, was an early adopter of Twitter, and he's written about everything from internet ethics to pop culture. When he joined me on the podcast last January, I asked him about the dark side of all of this technology. The single industry that is more responsible for creating culture today than any other, even entertainment or media, is tech. And part of it is because we're the mediators for the entertainment and media world, right? So it used to be, you know, the front page of the New York Times or the Dan Rather doing the evening news or the movie that was opening in the cineplexes would affect culture. But you won't even see that story on the front page of the New York Times unless Facebook decides you will. Right. If and, you're on Facebook looking yeah. for it. Yeah. 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 Well, and that's or the majority looking of people. at it at all. The majority yeah. of people's consumption of media is at least majority moderated through technology platforms today. Right. And that's even true where of things that we don't think of as technology anymore, like your cable box. Right. So what's featured and what the summaries are that are written, which shows have detailed summaries in the program guide on your cable box and which ones don't. Those are decisions by technology companies, too, making editorial decisions that we think of as neutral. And so this idea that you're going to route around them, and especially as they get more and more integrated, right? Like the boundaries of like, where is Comcast a media company? Where is it a tech company? It's like all of the above. This is a really big reckoning. And we have these sort of few tech media conglomerates that are bridging the gap between these things. And the control, the choke points in all these is where the most economic value is created. And that is in the tech side because they run the ad networks and they, they control the sort of the, the buying behavior and the surveillance behavior that enables the advertising to be sold. You stated that Twitter is the place that popular culture gets created. Yeah. Do you still feel that way? I think more than any other one network. It's an interesting thing because it's not the biggest, it's not the you know, the most users, but in America at least, there's no one network that has as much impact on culture as I think Donald Trump has demonstrated ably uh, than Twitter. After Trump became president, Twitter gave him the POTUS handle. And suddenly everyone that had opted into following President Obama were suddenly following Trump, myself included. Twitter apologized for this, but I couldn't understand how something like that could happen. I have some insight into this. I was an advisor to the Office of Digital Strategy under the Obama administration and talked specifically to them about this transition, which was well planned out. That was entirely intentional, and they announced the plan months ago that the Obama administration's tweets would be archived with a sort of 44 suffix. So, you know, POTUS became POTUS 44 and White House became White House 44. And uh, the tweets would be copied over and the followers would be copied to both accounts. It's like um, Y2K. <laughs> yeah, it was a very elaborate um, transition. And of course, I mean, Twitter can't ship features on the best of days for their products, let alone on a one-day switchover of the one of the most visible accounts in the world. Uh, so they botched that up. But even if they hadn't, people would have been upset to have said, I, you know, I followed the last POTUS. I didn't choose to follow this POTUS because there's a surprise expectation. But in addition, people who hadn't been following were and vice versa. And so you end up with the, the worst of all worlds, especially because there's so much mistrust about, um, one, the opaque nature of how following and such algorithms work on social networks and, two, about any ethical boundaries from the Trump administration in terms of what they would do to make their audience look bigger. You've been writing quite a lot on Medium.com and recently wrote this about Donald Trump. 
There are going to be endless think pieces and armchair analyses about why America elected Donald Trump as its next president. But you already know why. And I was wondering if you can tell me <laughs> what you know that I don't. <laughs> You're trying to get me in trouble. Uh, what's the what's the non-scary way to say white supremacy? Because that's it. That's the answer. Like people are trying to like overanalyze this and the other thing. And were there, you know, shortcomings and flaws in Hillary Clinton's campaign and her candidacy? Absolutely. Uh, are there inequities in, you know, the electoral college and how it represents the population of the popular vote? Absolutely. Ultimately, a bunch of people saw this guy being an unapologetic misogynist and an unveiled racist and thought that's okay because of whatever other reason. And those of us whose lives are put in danger by those positions of his and who cannot countenance his literal history of assaulting people know where the line lies. And there are people, a lot of people, millions of people in America who don't find someone who has admitted to committing uh, repeated sexual assaults to be unviable for the highest office in the land. They're wrong. It's not more complicated than that. People want to sort of find this probing, you know, soul-searching whatever thing. And it's like, no, there are a bunch of people that don't think it's wrong for a guy to be uh, an abuser of women and an unapologetic racist. And um, that's because they have the privilege of feeling that way. Anil Dash. Brian Koppelman is a filmmaker, podcaster, TV series creator, and a former record producer. He wrote Ocean's 13, produced The Illusionist, and created the TV show Billions. He often works with his longtime friend and writing partner, David Levian. When Koppelman came on Design Matters last January, I asked him what inspired him and Levian to write the movie Rounders, when Koppelman wasn't even a screenwriter. I had never in my life had I smoked a cigarette, and I'd hated cigarettes, and I caught myself in my office late at night eating like a cheeseburger and smoking, and I was miserable. Uh, and I realized what I was miserable about was Amy and I had had our first child, and I wanted to be the kind of person who would say to his kids, go chase your dreams, be anything you want. And I, I saw that I wasn't doing that and that I'd be a hypocrite. So I went – Dave was tending bar across town from where I was and I went and I said, look, man, I, I have to figure out how to do this. I really want to write a screenplay. And he'd been writing and tending bar and he said, well, we'll write a screenplay together and then you'll learn how to do it and we'll, we'll really do it. And we started talking about what themes would interest us and, and we had this idea of the, a kind of friendship between two people. And we had a couple of scenes uh, – like there's a scene in Rounders when one guy is hiding out in a gym and the other guy goes and finds him in the middle of the night. We had that scene really early on but we didn't know what they were going to be exactly. And then one night I walked into a poker club and as soon as I walked in and heard the people talking and looked around – it was an illegal poker club in Manhattan on 24th Street. Uh, I called him in the middle of the night and I said, dude, we're going to make a poker movie. And he said, yeah, I get it. And then he came the next night to the club and then we knew where these guys were going to live. You've written or directed or produced a number of poker-oriented or casino-oriented films, Runner Runner, Rounders, Ocean's 13. You also created the TV show Tilt, which was a series set against the backdrop of a fictional world championship of poker tournament. You were also cast in a bit part as a card player in Tony Gilroy's amazing film, Michael Clayton. Hey, hey, that's no bit part. 
apart. Thank you. Apart. Thank you very much. What is it you like so much about gambling? It's not gambling. It's poker that's fascinating to me. Gambling, although I've written about all sorts of gambling and know about it, what I'm really fascinated by, the thing that's really continues to be almost an obsession to me is professional poker players. It's such an incredibly difficult thing to be, to believe that you can outsmart everybody else at the table, that you have the guts to make the call at the moment when you have a very slim edge, that you can read when the other person's lying or when they're telling the truth. They're like modern-day gunslingers to me, and they always have been. And it's another life. If I had another shot, it's another thing that I would do. I'm just not quite a good enough card player. But the world of poker has never stopped being something that I love. How do you manage your tells? Right? <laughs> You're not going to tell us? <laughs> no, it's hard. Uh, yeah, no, it's hard. So you're also very involved in meditation. Yeah. That is a, a big part of your life. Yes. Do you find that meditation and this sort of inner calibration necessary for playing poker well have something in common? Well, awareness. So one of the ways in which people manage tells, I guess, is that instead of making it about you, you make it about the other players. So you're living in a posture of curiosity and fascination, right? What's going on with them? What's happening over here? So instead of being obsessed with my own state, right, I'm looking and noticing. So certainly that stuff ties in in some way. Meditation wasn't in no way driven by a desire to be like better at playing cards. Just better at life, right? Yeah. I practice transcendental meditation, which is, you know, silent mantra meditation. And it is a way to gain some calmness and some stillness and a bit of peace and has the practical effect of, for me, reducing like physical manifestations of anxiety by a really big amount, the same amount that those symptoms would be reduced by taking Lexapro or something. There's a lot of intense emotionality in your movies and in your TV shows. In a podcast with Seth Godin, you talk about how movie executives take comfort in decisions on which they can't get fired. Yeah. But most of your films have some element of risk-taking, chance-making, gambling. And I don't mean gambling. I mean it rhetorically, sort of life gambling. Yeah. Your screenplays aren't cliches. There isn't always a predictably happy ending. And I'm thinking of Solitary Man, for example. And yet you've managed to have a career in this industry for decades now. How do you manage this sort of risk-adverse, try-not-to-take-gambles tenants of the movie business? I tried to set up my life in a way that I could take risks so that Amy and I thought a lot about the way in which we wanted to live so that when there were years where I made a lot of money in Hollywood by being like a screenwriter, I didn't spend it all, which allowed me to go take the risks of making a movie like Solitary Man. So there have certainly been years when I've when it's been close to the line where – you know, we're living out of savings and we're looking at each other and not sure because I'm making, She's a novelist. She's a novelist and we're making an independent – Dave and I are making an independent film. But when I made the decision with Amy that this was the life I was going to chase, we were really aware because I wasn't – I was 30 and I had a career. And we were really aware that we were taking a chance together that this could work. We were aware of – the choice we were making, which was to live as writers and filmmakers. And I always wanted the ability to turn down Hollywood jobs that I didn't want to take. 
even when I talk about like knowing I had to be a writer or not want to take those jobs, for me, those weren't sort of effete notions. The fuller thought was that I realized I was a blocked person, a blocked writer. And that thing of me sitting, smoking, and eating a cheeseburger um, late at night in this office is that I realized I would become toxic, that something would die in me, and that if I allowed that to happen, that toxicity would spread to those that I loved. That was really the thought, because when something dies, it becomes toxic, and it spreads. And I didn't want to become toxic. And so I've always had an awareness that if I'm not leading from a place of curiosity and fascination— I become sad and angry and miserable, and then I could be that way to the people that I love. And that instead, if I'm leading from those places, and I feel like even if that means I make a movie like Solitary Man that, while incredibly well-reviewed and I get letters about it all the time, wasn't a a big commercial hit, but that gave me so much more joy than doing some rewrite on some big movie because I was making something that I cared deeply about making so that I had this sense every day of making progress and moving forward and becoming closer to a perfected form of myself. We never get there, but some closer version of that. So I don't even think about risk. I don't process risk in the way you're talking about. I really think of all this stuff as what's the next thing that I want to do? Boy, this seems hard to do. How do I, how do, I do it? That was Brian Koppelman. You can download full shows going back 13 years in the iTunes store. I'll be back soon with a brand new season of Design Matters. Design Matters is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio, the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. This is the 13th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember... We can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.